Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Professor Johnny Mshlangu, a key opinion leader for the Igazi Foundation, who have identified haemophilia as a definite risk factor in traditional circumcisions. Joining me in studio this evening will be Marianne Swartz, who descended into the depths of depression after the death of her mother. Her journey to recovery has been quite remarkable, and she now wants to help others by speaking out about her experiences. Last month marked the 25th anniversary of the first successful stem cell transplant from cord blood. Chatting with us this evening will be Louis Rail, Managing Director of CryoSave South Africa, a key player in the history of stem cell storage. And then I'll be speaking with Dr. Karen Norman, co-director of the Fetal Assessment Centre in Cape Town, which is the first in South Africa to offer new Down syndrome screening. And just a reminder, if you need any information about something you hear on the show this evening or you miss a contact number or a website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Health Matters with Karen Key. Reports of death during traditional initiation rites often hit the headlines here in South Africa and there's always a devastating sense of young lives lost too soon. The Igazi Foundation has identified haemophilia as a definite risk factor in traditional circumcisions and joining me now is Professor Johnny Mshlangu, a key opinion leader for the Igazi Foundation. Professor Mshlangu, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen, and good, good evening to your listeners. So this is actually quite a, I would find it quite a revolutionary thinking, this haemophilia, because, gosh, these circumcision deaths have been going on for so long, and now there's the possibility that this could be one of the causes of some of the deaths. Yes, certainly, Karen. I think you'll recall in our previous conversation that haemophilia uh, is a condition that affects predominantly males, and circumcision is a uh, practice that is largely involving males. And in fact, to us, um, the connections between the two is uh, fairly obvious um, in the sense that uh, the Obviously, the, the bulk of the deaths in circumcision may well be due to other factors such as infection, such as uh, uh, no pain, etc. And, and the obvious connection between the bleeding disorder, which is hemophilia, and uh, that the essence of circumcision has not really been uh, brought to the fore. Because and that's the point we're trying to make. Because when it comes to cir- circumcision, I think we are all aware that in a lot of cases there are poor surgical practices, the non-sterile conditions. So there are a lot of possibilities that lead to these unfortunate deaths. But this is something that does need to be investigated as well, the haemophilia side of it. Certainly. In fact, this is not new. I mean, there are several studies carried out in, in Africa. Uh, and in fact, the incidence and the prevalence of um, bleeding in circumcision is very variable. It ranges, for example, uh, from about 5% in fairly controlled environment where the surgeons are well trained to as high as 50% in uh, circumstances where uh, it's done without any supervision. So what is the Agazi Foundation doing now? The Gadi Foundation, uh, first of all, um, it is uh, raising awareness about a whole host of uh, hematologic conditions uh, focusing largely on leukemia, but it's also um, raising awareness about the possibility that uh, bleeding disorders may well contribute 
to um, some of the complications associated with uh, circumcision. As you know, uh, it is based in the Eastern Cape, and, uh, and in fact, that's where most of the deaths uh, relating to circumcision have happened. So for those listening now, parents possibly listening, <clears throat> excuse me, what should they do before they send their sons off for initiation? Well, first of all, I think the parents need to be aware of the deaths in the family. Uh, if there has been uh, unexplained deaths, if there has been people who die under mysterious circumstances where bleeding was mentioned, uh, those individuals should then uh, be uh, consulting so that the possibility of a bleeding disorder can be screened for and excluded. This is the PIT test? Yes, yeah. This is a PTT test test, uh, that can be done in most of the labs, particularly the secondary care labs and the tertiary care labs, where a a simple test will be done and it will indicate whether someone is a bleeder or not. And that is the that is the PI and the PTT test. So for those also listening now, it's this because if your child is diagnosed as possibly a high risk, it doesn't mean that they can't go through the circumcision, but possibly it would then be advisable for them to have it done in a provincial hospital. Certainly in this day and age, um, um, no one should die from uh, bleeding disorders such as hemophilia because they are manageable. Uh, so if you do make a diagnosis, it does not mean that the procedure cannot be carried out. All it means is that that person will then undergo the procedure um, under well-supervised circumstances where the, if there is a need for replacement, that is given. And in fact, most of the procedures that we carry out um, are carried out successfully successfully uh, as long as we are aware of what we're dealing with. Now you mentioned that parents should be possibly aware of, of other deaths in the family or other problems that have arisen or bleeding disorders, but could you just tell them what, to, what they possibly should look out for? Because maybe in the past it wasn't spoken about or they weren't aware that maybe a relative had haemophilia. What should they be looking out for? Well, first of all, uh, hemophilia is very unique in the sense that uh, the people who are likely to bleed from hemophilia are exclusively males. Females do bleed, but not a lot. Uh, uh, Males are the ones that are likely to bleed. So if there's a family history of uh, predominantly males bleeding, that is usually a sign that you may well have hemophilia. But the commonest presenting uh, symptoms and signs would be uh, largely bleeding into the skin, bleeding into the muscles, and the commonest site of bleeding is actually bleeding into the joints. So, so if at an early age uh, a child has unexplained bruising and or finds that the knees or the elbows or the ankles swell without necessarily having trauma, those will be the signs that will indicate that that person may well have hemophilia. Now, you and I have spoken about this before, but it's one of those conditions which, unfortunately, when it possibly first presents when the child is very young, that the mother could, or the parents could be considered as being abusive because nobody really knows why this child is so bruised all the time. You're absolutely right. In fact, um, uh, some of the diagnoses are made in those circumstances where the parents are accused of child abuse. And in fact, uh, once the diagnosis is made, as you know, um, you know it, it becomes quite clear what the diagnosis is. Yes, certainly, um, you know, we are continually educating, particularly the welfare 
um, departments and societies that um, if they do come across you know, supposedly abused children, they should actually consider hemophilia amongst the other factors that they take into account. Don't, dis- don't exclude the possibility of abuse, but look further than that. Exactly. In fact, that's the same with uh, circumcision. Do not overlook the possibility that it may not be a bad surgical technique. It may not be infection. It may well be that, in fact, genuinely the person cannot clot. Have there been studies done as to the the possibility of, of when it comes to these circumcision deaths, how many of those have been due to the fact that the child has been a hemophiliac? Yes, in fact, there are many studies, and I could quote a couple from Africa. There was a study done in Nigeria where up to 52% of patients were found to have bled post-surgery. And of those, in fact, unfortunately, the circumstances in Nigeria at that stage is that they could not make a diagnosis. So, so we, 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 we suspect that, in fact, a large proportion of those must have been hemophiliacs. So, gosh, it is definitely a, a huge problem that needs to be taken extremely seriously. And it's a, gr- it's a good thing that the Igazi Foundation, you actually have a program, a special program, um, a project actually dedicated to looking into this. Certainly. I mean, we, we're glad that at least um, the NGOs such as Igazi are taking the, uh, you know, the, the education and the awareness program forward for the hemophilia fraternity in South Africa. As we uh, indicated before, we have diagnosed um, at least half of those patients that we predict based on the population of South Africa that they should actually be present. And in fact, we haven't, we haven't seen the other half. So the big question now is we need to get the education out there. We need parents to be aware. And if there's any possibility that there could be a problem with your son, please do have it checked out before he goes off for, for initiation. Certainly. I think that is the message here. If, if in doubt, uh, have, have the child tested. And, and certainly it does not mean that the child will not be able to undergo the, 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 the rights to, to, to manhood. And uh, it, 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 the child will come back home alive. That is the bottom line. That's what we want at the, exactly. end of, at the end of the day. So, Professor Mishlango, it sounds like we're on the right track here, and hopefully we will ho- cut the numbers dramatically of, of children losing their lives, as I said at the beginning, way too early when it comes to something which is a, a rite of passage and should be a happy time, not something where children are dying. Certainly, and I think um, at the end of the day, this kind of conversation, hopefully it will raise the profile and increase awareness. And I will give out the website. Is there information for parents on the Igazi website? Do you know? Yes, there is information for parents. And, of course, there is a, a contact details uh, on the website where parents may well want to contact someone who can give them direction. Well, I, th- I think we're on the right path, as I said. Professor Mshlangu, thank you so much. It's been really great talking to you again. I hope we do so again in the future. Thanks very much, Karen. Thanks for um, your exposure. Thanks for the time. Good night to you. Professor Johnny Mshlangu is a key opinion leader for the Igazi Foundation. And for more information, you can have a look at www.igazi.org.za. And that's spelled I-G-A-Z-I, igazi.org.za. And it's time now to cross to Mo Ali for an update on the friendly international between Bafana Bafana and Spain, which is currently on the go at the FNB Stadium. Mo, what's the latest? Very good evening to you, Karen. Uh, it's uh, 15 minutes gone. It's uh, still goalless, but uh, as you would expect from the number one ranked side in the world and uh, the current uh, World Cup champions and the European champions, they are dominating and they are showing uh, their quality 
Bafana Bafana finding it very difficult uh, to get their foot on the ball as uh, Spain uh, dominate. They did have the ball in the back of the net through David Villa in the uh, fourth minute but uh, was correctly ruled offside and uh, the goal didn't stand. There was one brief moment where Andile Jari turned on some skill much to the delight of the uh, 35,000 crowd that's in here this evening on a lovely evening in uh, Johannesburg and the pitch in absolutely superb condition. No fewer than seven players from the Spanish side that started in uh, 2010 when they beat Holland in the final of the World Cup on the 11th of July 2010 have started this evening's game as well. Estokela Ranchi now makes his way towards the penalty area and uh, being forced back as uh, South Africa launch a rare attack but it's uh, easily broken up by the team in red and quite a lot of Spanish flags in the crowd here as well lovely atmosphere and uh, the World Cup before kickoff was also paraded and uh, held aloft by the Spanish captain and goalkeeper Ika Casilla so uh, 16 and a half minutes gone at the FNB Stadium it's the world champions Spain nil Bafana Bafana nil Muhammad Ali for SAFM Sport Health Matters with Karen Key well, after the death of her mother, Marianne Swartz descended into the depths of depression and her journey to recovery has been quite remarkable. And she now wants to help others by speaking out about her experiences. And she's in studio with me this evening. Marianne, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening to you too. So tell me about your, what happened to you. I've mentioned the death of your mom. That was almost like a trigger point for you, which started you off and into depression you went. Yes. Um, I didn't know that I was sick in the beginning. I got, um, I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to eat. I just wanted to sleep. And I started missing my mom more and more every day. I didn't want to tell people about it because in like in our area, um, it's a shame. You get branded for having an illness like that. And even though I wanted to be strong, I just couldn't. I fell, um, my, my family was suffering. They didn't know what to do. Um, my daughter, Julie, she was the one that was there for me. I think um, if people don't have the support that I got and at the turning point where I actually just gave up and um, I saw, I asked God to, he must give me a sign because I want to, I don't want to die. And if you've seen me like, um, a year and a half ago, you'd never believe I'm sitting here having the smile on my face and feeling so good about myself. I was down and out. My family, um, my brothers and sisters, they didn't know what I was going through because I pretended putting the smile on my face. Everyone in our area, because I'm a community leader, um, everyone in our area know me as a strong person. So I get up. I go outside, I put a smile on, nobody asks you questions until that one day when somebody says something and you just burst into tears. And um, it was so hard for me because I was laying in bed um, with my daughter going through her exams and not knowing what was going on. Um, and she's trying to figure out, mommy, what's wrong? Talk to me. And I couldn't. And I was lying there, I didn't. I did nothing in my house. I didn't want to go to work at all. And it was like that one day, I, th I don't know who or what made me go for help. I got this number and I went for help. 
And when I got to the um, clinic and I looked at the people and I'm like, I'm not going to sit there. I'm not crazy. And I'm like, I went to go sit in the other corner. And when the sister came out and she called me and I went into the room because it's all private. Nobody see you. Nobody hear you. Um, it's confidential. You don't have to worry about the thing. I just broke into tears. I cried and cried and she didn't stop me. She listened. Um, I, um, when she asked me the questions about Mary Ann, um, what's wrong? And she, she didn't ask me like, um, tell me this, tell me that. She let me speak. And then it, I just cried more and I cried more and I'm like thinking, what is going on with me? What's happening to me? And after I've spoken to this woman, Sister Andris, at the Lentegia Hospital, um, it felt so good. But I wasn't in, I was nowhere close to recovering. She immediately made an appointment for me to see the doctor and the psychologist. Um, there's a waiting list and I don't know how I got to be like the next week I saw the psychologist and as I was talking to her she was she was amazing um, I talked session after session I cried I talked I broke down um, I had a nervous breakdown and I couldn't believe it I didn't tell anybody and as a psychologist um, knowing that everything is confidential I wasn't worried about what goes on outside the door because I knew nobody's going to tell. And I walked out of that room day um, every week because I had weekly sessions. But it always felt good after talking to her. I was put on depression um, tablets. Um, yes, I did try to um, take my life. And lucky for me, when I, when I asked the Lord to show me... Um, and I'm not this person. You've got to help me. You've got to help me see. Give me a sign. And I saw my kids' faces. And it, um, I just stopped. And I fell asleep. And with the amazing, if you don't have the support system, even though my family didn't know I was what I was going through, I had other people in my life. People I work for, they were amazing. They helped me through this. Um, they supported me financially. Um, they supported me emotionally. Um, whenever I needed something, they were there. Um, Mrs. Margie, Miss Becky, Mr. Mike, Mr. Nick, um, Anita, Miss Bonnie. Um, there were so many people and I actually owe my life to all of them and especially my daughter Julie. If they weren't there for me and I didn't get the support from them, I would have been gone because I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have had the strength to go on. Because as I tell you now that when, if you would have seen me a year and a half ago, you wouldn't believe this woman sitting in front of you has come this long way. And I want to tell people, you don't need to be ashamed about this. Talk or get help. It's free. You don't need to pay a cent. It's confidential. It's private. Um, 
and the family you got to look for these signs when you're in this situation and I can talk about it if if you don't watch for these signs I didn't want to talk to my family because I was not ashamed of what they were thinking I just didn't I didn't care anymore and when you when you're so close to giving up and even though the, the psychologist and the doctor told me that I am a this is a sickness and people can die they can really die of this I want to people to look for these signs family members give the support to the people that they need because your family is the closest thing that you've got and I didn't get it from my family I got it from the people I worked for and I wanted my family to to see what I was going through but because I've hidden it they didn't know and I want my mom is not here anymore she's gonna be gone for two years on Sunday and I think um, the way she brought me up I'm proud to say that I'm the daughter of Mari Johnson because she brought me up very well and because she made me she made me the strong person that I am today and it's because of her that I didn't give up and even though she's not here anymore she'll always be in my heart and I want people out there like the community to stop treating people as if they have some sickness or disease that other people can get you're not helping at all you need to reach out and find a way to help these people because a lot of people get nervous breakdowns and they don't come out of it I'm one of those lucky ones that got the support and got out of it so please people I beg you don't don't treat the people like they have a disease and um, talk about them behind their back and in their faces and laugh at them and make fun of them it's not helping at all we're supposed to be a community that have to stand together and fight and if your family and friends is going to be there for you and the community is going to be there for you a lot of people will be saved because I know that a lot of people land up in hospital and never come out of this because they didn't have the strong support go for the help that you need go to the Lentegeer clinic in at Lentegeer station you don't have to be ashamed Mary Ann, you, I don't quite know how to come back from that, but the difference that you are making by talking about your journey, what you are doing for other people, I cannot begin to tell you how valuable that is because people listening to your story, possibly sitting at home thinking, I thought I was the only one. And hearing you, they possibly tomorrow will now go and get help and maybe their family are listening and their family are thinking, oh, well, that's what's wrong with my wife or my mother or whoever it is and by talking out like you are doing this evening the difference that you are making in so many people's lives you talk about being a community leader 
that's exactly what you are. And you talk about being a strong woman. Your mother would be so <laughs> proud of you, Mary Ann, really. It's you are doing a remarkable job of getting the word out there and talking because unfortunately depression, as you know, is one of those things that people can't see. So they look at you and they think that you're fine. But inside, you're not fine. And by talking out like you are, it is the most remarkable thing that you are doing. And you are helping so many people. I cannot tell you how proud I am just to have met you this evening. Thank you so much. Um, I also want to thank Chin for writing my story, um, asking me to, when she asked me to, will I be able to like feel comfortable to do the story? I felt safe. I just talked. I talked and I talked and I talked my heart out. I cried. She never ever said, no, Mary Ann, that's enough now. Um, she's amazing. And the Jen she's referring to, you've heard on the show a few times, it's Jen Goy, who is the publishing editor of Thrive magazine. And if you want to read more about Mary Ann, it's in the current issue of Thrive. Beautiful photograph of Mary Ann and her story in there as well. And you can read more about her journey in that magazine. Jen, um, still on sale, this particular issue? Yes, it is, absolutely. Um, Until when? People have to rush um, or is it about for a while still? Till about just before Christmas. So okay, so you haven't got shows. too much time. Go out and dash out and get yourself a copy of the current issue of Thrive and you'll be able to read all about Marianne's story. But please, if you do have any problems or any concerns about depression, there are so many available places to go. The South African Depression and Anxiety Group is open literally 24-7, well, not quite 24-7, but every 365 days of the year from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., you can get hold of them. There's counsellors online for you to talk to. As Marianne says, if you're in Cape Town, Lentechia Hospital is at the Lentechia station. It's very easily accessible. Yes. There are lots of people out there who are willing to help you. But unfortunately, as you know, Marianne, initially you have to take that step yes. and ask for the help. And once you do, you could be on the same road as Marianne. Yes. And on her way to a good resolution. And Jen. And Jen. Yes. <laughs> It's another story for another time. It's a time. whole other story, yes. <laughs> but it's been absolutely an absolute pleasure and a privilege to talk with you this evening, Mary Ann. I, I thank you so much for coming through to the show. And um, I wish you much love and success and happiness in your future. And I'm sure you're going to change the lives of many people. I will try my best. And thank you for having me. And thank you for your time. Only, only a pleasure. Well, as I mentioned, if you'd like to read more about Mary Ann's story, get hold of the current issue of Thrive magazine. And you can also find them on the web. It's www.thrivemag.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, October marked the 25th anniversary of the first successful stem cell transplant from cord blood. And as a key player in the history of stem cell storage, Cryosave is able to provide modern technology and expertise, facilitating coverage against possible future disabling illnesses through storing stem cells from umbilical cord blood. Well, joining me now is Louis Rail, Managing Director of Cryosave South Africa. Louis, good evening. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Yes, good to be with you guys. So this this is all sort of sounds terribly much like, you know, Star Trek and things sort of from the future that we watch on television, but it's a reality. We can actually save stem cell from cord blood now, and it, it makes a huge difference if we are diagnosed later in life with some illness. Yeah, it is. it, it does sound. I must agree with you. It, it is quite um, futuristic sounding, yes. especially when you start to get into the future applications. But it's very much a reality, and it has been actually for a long time. It's just one of those things you you probably don't hear about that world until you sort of become ill, I suppose, and which is probably a good thing. 
Um, and, uh, you know, what we're trying to do is is actually get it a little bit more well-known because there's people out there that could uh, be banking cord blood and, and uh, providing themselves with a, a set of options later on in life as uh, a lot of these emerging therapies uh, become a reality. Now, CryoSave South Africa is part of an, of an international organization. Absolutely, yeah. We're in 40 countries. Uh, we've collected samples from over 70 countries um, across six continents. So we've got a, a magnificent footprint, and um, it, it just sort of stands testament to uh, sort of the people that are willing to work with us, I suppose, because of our expertise. So tell us now, if you, people want to store this, how does this actually work? Well, it does uh, It does sound a little bit odd, doesn't it? I mean, we, we have a child that's being born, and uh, we want to save stem cells from them. So it can sound a little bit intimidating, but it's actually quite simple. It doesn't affect the normal birth process at all. So when the baby is born, the cord would be clamped and cut as it normally would be, and, and babies removed and looked after by the midwife or the pediatrician or whatever the case might be. And then we've got this placenta with this leftover cord blood that's thrown away. It's treated as a waste product. And what we do is we collect that blood and we we process these very special and unique stem cells out of that blood. And we we cryopreserve it for later on. And, And cryopreservation is a is a technique where we use ultra-low temperatures to preserve the biological materials indefinitely. I was about to ask you, how long can it last for? Well, it, look, I can give a simple answer and a scientific answer, but the, um, the scientific evidence that we have stands in our 23 and a half years that proves that we can store umbilical cord stem cells uh, viably for that period of time. And obviously, as time ticks, so will those studies prove, uh, you know, longer and longer periods of time. Um, but what it suggests is what we already know about cryopreservation of other materials is that we can keep these uh, these cells viable for indefinite periods. Now, just for those who can't quite figure out exactly how this all works, basically it has st- stem cells have the ability to develop into all the different blood cell types. So it doesn't matter what the condition is, potentially that you could be diagnosed with later on, the stem cells could possibly be used to assist with the repair of whatever the condition is? Well, simplistically speaking, you're absolutely correct. Um, remember that our bodies are created essentially from stem cells. So from the, the uh, fertilization of the egg, um, these cells start dividing and they become stem cells, which ultimately go on to become every different type of cell in our bodies. And our bodies um, retain these stem cells and they're responsible for ongoing repair and, and so on. So, for instance, your blood is probably at any one time only 120 days old and your blood it constantly renews itself through stem cells dividing and becoming blood cells. So um, what we know is that sometimes things go wrong or we get affected by the illnesses and using these stem cells, which is probably the most natural cell in our body, we can now... Uh, replace them or put them back in the body and uh, assist our bodies to heal themselves. So um, it is obviously quite scientific and and medical and we are oversimplifying, but that's essentially how it works. And what we know from this is that we can successfully treat over 70 different types of blood and immune system disorders. That's what's currently being done. But probably what's more fascinating is, is now that we've understood how stem cells work in the body, how we can use this type of technology to start doing other types of very exciting things. So 
Um, they're looking at heart muscle regeneration, uh, hearing loss, everything, anything that you can think of because it's using the body's sort of natural repair mechanism. I mean, some of the things I was reading about that they are apparently having promising results with things like diabetes and arthritis, blindness, even open wounds like burns and frostbite. I mean, gosh, the list sounds like it could potentially be endless. It is, absolutely. Um, there's a very reliable source that people can use to do their homework. It's, it's not our website. It's an independent website called clinicaltrials.gov. And um, this is this is a site I can recommend people do some homework on, and, and it's primarily driven through the search function. So you can put on there anything you can think of, really, whether it be spinal cord and the word stem cells, and it will bring up the really legitimate studies around the world that are happening with stem cells, uh, you know, looking to restore uh, spinal cord injuries. Now, you can put in there anything you like, whether it be arthritis or autism even. There's clinical trials now running with autism, etc. So it's quite a challenge, actually, to find something that they're not using stem cells to try and treat. And, um, look, I mean, it is uh, in various stages, and what we know is that probably 10 years ago there was a handful of diseases that we could treat, and today there's over 70, and if you continue that projection into the next 10 or 20 years, I think um, it's going to be quite exciting in medicine what we can treat, you know, uh, diseases that essentially today we, we don't even dream of treating. So it's um, it's important to consider, you know, you've got a, a snapshot of today's illnesses, and um, if you look at that, yes, it's, uh, it's very exciting and interesting, but if you look into the future, um, you start to you know, consider this totally differently and how it might change the face of medicine over the next 10 or 20 years. Now, just, I mean, this might sound like a bit of a ridiculous question, but just heaven forbid something happens and you have got some of this in storage and you make an inverted commas a withdrawal to help you with whatever the condition is. Is it a once-off withdrawal or can you, do you, how much of it do you use at one time or is it multiple withdrawals if you need them? Well, in our industry, there is no simple question, so <laughs> um, it's, it is quite complex. And, and uh, again, talking in today's terms, um, remember that when we're treating something, you, you probably want to use the highest possible dose of treatment that you have access to. So the reality is, is that um, the number of cells that you have available is important, and whatever you've got available, you're probably going to be using all of it to ensure the best outcomes of your transplant. So. That's in today's terms, but what they're looking at, and because this is one of the challenges with with stem cells, is that you need a certain volume for treatment, is what they call amplification, or multiplying these cells, or growing them, so that we've we've got more potentially more than one treatment, or we can um, you know give give larger doses in treatment. So it's also quickly becoming a reality, and and sort of almost science moves quicker than regulations do. So it's possible to amplify these cells, and, and again, we can only now, you know, nobody's got a crystal ball, but if, if we start imagining the possibilities into the next 10 or 20 years, they're looking at using and, and multiplying these cord bloods for multiple uses, which is quite exciting. One of the, um, one of the, uh, the items being researched that I've heard about now is called blood farming, farming with a pH where they're looking at producing blood units because there's always a, d- a demand for blood, especially on the battlefield. Uh, and, and it's the, the, uh, you know, the Americans that are looking into this now and creating blood units from stem cells. So, uh, you know, that's why I say the, the possibilities are just immense.
Gosh, now I was actually also reading something that it, that it said there that going forward that CryoSave could also possibly be able to offer other cryogenic services. What other services would there be to offer the medical industry in the future? Well, there's, there's so much. You know, this um, this whole world of um, cells and DNA and genetics is, is is really starting to blossom, and we're really starting to understand the value of these. Uh, these cells and um, you know when one does for instance a a clinical trial or, or something looking into an, a vaccine um, what you will imagine is that up until a couple of years ago we didn't realize what was in cord blood that we were throwing away without knowing the huge value of, of cord blood and now if you imagine that we might still be doing that with different pieces of biological material we should really be saving those in a bank because one day as we discover what these hidden properties are of these uh, cells or um, even just keeping a historical uh, timeline of certain, let's think of, uh, you know, animal species or, or whatever the case might be, you start to build what's, what's really a library of this historical genetic material. So we can start to offer that with this special thing that is cryogenic storage. So when you put or store cells very carefully at ultra-low temperatures like uh, liquid nitrogen at minus 196, the biological clock of this material slows down to practically zero and it's literally frozen in time. So 60 years from now you can thaw that material out and you've got it like in the same condition as the day that it was stored. So it's, it's opening a whole new world again for, for research. You must have a very fun, exciting time going to work every day. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound glamorous, but at the end of the day, it, it, it's just an industry that's out there. And it, yes, it's a unique industry, and it's, it is, it's, it's challenging, it's unique. You know, you're always finding new things that uh, are possible, and uh, people are always talking about, can we do this and can we do that? So yes, it's, it's definitely more interesting than some industries, I'm sure. How has this been taken up by the South African public? Are, are they sort of in tune with what's going on as far as cryo-service concerned, cryo-service concerned? Well, absolutely. We've noticed, especially over the last three years, a, a massive um, surge in, in interest in this. Now, uh, it's driven by probably a lot of things. Um, uh, you know, it's becoming a popular term on, on normal TV programs, you know, popular sitcoms like Grey's Anatomy, etc. You know, in America and Europe, this is this is a common household term and people are much more aware of it than they are here in South Africa. But it's starting to come through on those uh, platforms, you know, social media is another one. And um, it's just sort of people are coming to understand that there's this opportunity, which is great, because um, you've only got one opportunity to bank your baby's cord blood, and it must be considered properly with your birth plan. And um, it's changed. It's, it's getting much better. And um, we do have challenges. Remember that um, uh, we've got the Internet, which is good and bad. Google yes. doesn't have a filter, unfortunately. No. <laughs> And, um, you know, there are lots of wacky stories out there which creates a problem in its own way. So, you know, that's why we try and provide a service to parents that help them to get real legitimate information because you must understand when you've got a family um, that's got, you know, I heaven forbid, imagine a child that's ill or somebody that's had, and, and we, get, we get contacted often by people who have had spinal cord injuries, that, are, that have heard about the, the research that's being done and are desperately looking for treatment, and one can't blame them. But, um, you know, to try and find a legitimate uh, treatment facility 
is is quite a challenge. You know, it's it's quite dangerous. Stem cell tourism is something that's becoming mm. uh, quite dangerous, and you'll understand that um, people that are desperately looking for alternatives will uh, mortgage their house, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and, and uh, people are being exploited. So it's quite quite dangerous, and, and that's also what we do, is we try and help people to sort of at least um, help them understand what the important questions are to ask when considering a treatment, etc. Um, and um, we work very closely with some transplant facilities, and I'll tell you, um, they're, they're incredibly skeptical about what's going out there, because it is, uh, you know, the uh, and, and there's certain countries are worse than others with offering these bogus treatments. So, you know, it's, it's very, you've got to be very careful. Well, Louis, I think you've given us all exactly how this works now. So if people want more information, cryo-save.co.za, on your website, they'll be finding more information. Yes, absolutely. Right. Okay, you can understand from our short discussion, it can be fairly technical. So yes. we, we invite people to contact us because um, everybody's got a different medical history. Mm. You know, uh, Omar and Opa have got different things. And to, to, to properly help you understand what can and can't be done, because we can't do everything, stem cells is not a silver bullet for everything out there, and that's just as important to understand. And um, so we like to walk people through the decision-making process to help them understand whether it's right for their family. And um, and then they can make the choice for themselves. And it's, it, like I say, it's important that it, uh, the decisions get made with the right information before the birth of their child so that they don't miss the opportunity if they wish to take it. Great. Well, I'll give out the website address. But, Louis, thank you so much indeed for your time this evening. Been a pleasure. Thanks for chatting with me. Good night to you. Louis Rail. Bye bye. Louis Rail is the managing director of CryoSave SA. And for more information on CryoSave or stem cell storage, you can contact them on 087 8080170 or take a look at the website www.cryosave.co.za. That's C R Y O hyphen save.co.za. Well, it's time once again to cross to Mo Ali for an update on the friendly international between Bafana, Bafana, and Spain. It's currently on the go at the F&B Stadium. Mo, what's the latest? Well, uh, we've just had the end of the 45 minutes and the fourth official from Lesotho will show us that uh, if he will hold up the board, he's got the board, he hasn't held it up as yet, waiting for the signal from the referee, but it's still goalless here. One minute of stoppage time uh, to be added. And uh, Bafana Bafana, since we last spoke, certainly have uh, come into the game much more and they've given a very good account of themselves in the second part of the first half as they come forward now but uh, Tokelo Ranti trying uh, to get his shot on goal showing a bit too much of the ball to uh, Sergio Ramos and uh, the Spanish central defender will clear but uh, Bafana Bafana have seen a lot more of the ball and they've also made a few good raids into uh, Spanish territory as yet not uh, being able to breach the defence but they do win a corner and this will probably be the last of the action. In fact, the minute of stoppage time has elapsed to this corner will be the last of what's been a very eventful first half played in front of 35,000 people, a bright full moon above us as well. The Spaniards did have the ball in the back of the net as early as the fourth minute, but David Villa's goal was disallowed by the linesman for offside correctly so Bernard Parker had a shot saved by the Spanish goalkeeper and captain Ike Casillas in the 20th minute and Fernando Lorente had a header going just wide as the corner comes in at the near post it goes narrowly wide from Bongani Comalo he scored with a similar header in the World Cup against France in Bloemfontein in that 2-1 victory over the French this time his header going just wide 
and uh, the referee now should blow the half-time whistle yeah at the FNB Stadium so Bafana Bafana have recovered well after a bit of an ifish start perhaps a bit overawed by the quality of the opposition but they have come back very nicely into this game so at half-time then at the FNB Stadium it's Bafana Bafana nil Spain nil Muhammad Ali for SFM Sport Health Matters with Karen Key. Joining me on the line this evening is Dr. Karen Norman, and she's co-director of the Fetal Assessment Centre here in Cape Town. Dr. Norman, good evening. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good evening. Rather exciting news we're going to impart this evening. You, the, the Fetal Assessment Centre here in Cape Town is the first in South Africa to offer new Down syndrome screening. That's correct. We started doing the test in July... And um, I think we've done about 70 patients so far, which is really good for an expensive test. And we're really excited to offer this test to our mothers because it's non-invasive. So up until now, the screening test that we've done, which has involved a scan and a blood test at 12 weeks, has been 95% accurate. And this new test that we um, send mom's blood off to America is 99.5%, which is really brilliant and definitely the best test we've had in the last 40 years of obstetrics. This so is, we're all very excited. This is called the Harmony Prenatal Test. The one that we use is the Harmony Test, and that is done by a lab called Ariosa in California. There are other tests from other labs. But we've chosen this one because it's really been around for the longest time, has the most clinical trials, has been tested by the Fetal Medicine Foundation in London, to which we all belong, and is also the cheapest of the selfie DNA tests that are available worldwide. Now, the difference about this, because if people think about testing for Down syndrome, it's normally involving an amniocentesis. This doesn't do that. To be 100% sure means that you have to take a risk, which means we need to put a needle into the placenta to take a sample of the placental tissue if you are under 14 weeks pregnant. And if you are further pregnant than that, then we normally do an amniocentesis. And both of those procedures have got a miscarriage rate that varies from 1% to about uh, 0.4% or 1 in 350. So having a test that's as accurate as this with absolutely no risk to the mother is just really fantastic. And we've been using it so far mostly for mothers that are 35 years or older or moms that have had IVF pregnancies. It can also be used for twins, for donor over, for surrogate mothers. So it's really been fantastic for our, for our pregnant moms that have struggled to get pregnant and are really scared of having an amniocentesis or a CVS. So I mentioned in the beginning that it was, I was talking about the fact that it was for Down syndrome screening, but it can be used for a number of other situations as well. It's not just for that one thing. The most accurate use, though, is for Down syndrome. And then there's also chromosome 18 and 13 abnormalities, which are the next two most common abnormalities. And it's also got about a 90% detection rate for that. And then six chromosome abnormalities as well. So those are far more rare than Down syndrome. 
And most of the screening programs around the, the world aim at, you know, picking up the downs because it's the most common of the abnormalities. And this can also be done a little bit earlier, 10 weeks. It can be done any time from 10 weeks. The, the reason why it's not done before is because there's not enough fetal fraction. So really our babies bleed into us and we can pick up the baby's DNA in the mother's DNA, in the mother's blood. So we need at least 4% of the mom's DNA to be fetal, and we call that the fetal fraction. And this can be picked up from 10 weeks onwards. And we've been doing it between 10 and 21 weeks. So it's not just reserved for the first trimester, although we'd like to to do it as early as possible. If we pick up something wrong later on in the pregnancy, you know, at the time of the detail scan at 20 weeks, then it's an option instead of having an amniocentesis, depending on what we have found. And also people listening or thinking, well, gosh, if it's going all the way to America, it's going to take months to come back. But you've got a turnaround time of about 10 to 12 days. That's quite quick. Very good. So our blood takes two days to get to um, California, and we've got the results seven days later. So we've got a, an average of a nine-day turnaround time, but, you know, the range of 10 to 12 days. So it's really working very well, and we have to say thanks to FedEx for that <laughs> because they come here in the afternoon and, and collect the blood on time to catch the, the evening plane. We keep talking about these blood tests, that, and just to put people's minds at rest, we've said that it's not like an amniocentesis, it's a non-invasive blood test. So what exactly are you doing? We're taking the blood from the mother's arm, just as you would a normal blood test, and then that goes into special little tubes which are specially packed and go off to America. So it's got absolutely no risk to the pregnancy at all. We don't go near the mom's tummy. It's simply a blood test from mom's arm. Is this something that if people are wanting to have it done, they would need to be referred by a medical practitioner or can they just come along themselves? How does that part of it work? They can just come along themselves. We've got a website that we've got all the information on and that's www.fetalassessment.coza and we have a dedicated midwife, Jill, who is running the program for us. So to date, we've had patients come on their own. We've had patients referred from their doctors. We're here to help everybody. The one thing, Karen, that, that, that I always am concerned about is if somebody's having a test like this and, heaven forbid, there is a problem, is there somebody that will be able to counsel them or to help them through when you're giving them the results or do, do those results get sent to the doctor? How does that side of the whole deal work? When the patient comes for the first interview, the um, counselling is done by qualified genetic counsellors. There are uh, two doctors from Stellenbosch University who are helping us with the program. So they get counselling from an expert right from the beginning. And if the result is abnormal, then the genetic counsellor will be involved, including ourselves, Dr. Morris and myself, we both the doctors running the clinic, and then, of course, the referring gynecologist. So right from the beginning, the team consists of a genetic counsellor, the midwife. We do the ultrasound scan to check that the baby is normal and alive and so on. And then the referring gynecologist as well.
So it's very nice to know that the person, as, as I said, could come along on their own, but once they get there, they are going to be surrounded by the top professional people that can help them through whatever the situation might be, whether it be good a or bad or whatever. Mm. Yeah, a whole team. We've also got a psychologist who's on our team should the results be abnormal and mom needs help, you know, emotionally to support her. So we've got a whole team that's, that backs up the test. I mentioned that you were the first prenatal clinic in South Africa to offer this testing. Are you planning on opening up any more clinics around the country? Because this is, you know, people listening to this are all over the country and thinking, gosh, well, there isn't one up here or down here or wherever they are. Are you the only one? Is this going to be like that now? Are you going to be looking at opening up others, do you think? We started doing the test and we hope that others will follow suit. We presented the results at our National Ultrasound Congress in Pretoria two weeks ago. And there was great interest. So I hope the fetal centers in Johannesburg and Durban and Bloemfontein will also start. They were very keen to start. Um, and then there's also a fetal medicine center in Panorama that has just started. I think they've done three patients so far. So I think, you know, once we have presented our own data to our own doctors, it becomes more convincing and, you know, to show that this actually works and we can get the result and it's safe and perfect to use for older moms. This, as you, you keep mentioning that, you you know, you have been testing moms over the age of 35 or possibly from one of the other sections of society. You mentioned sort of ladies who are having IVF and all sorts of other possible situations. But this isn't for yes. just everybody doesn't have to run off and go and do this and start thinking now, oh, gosh, I better go and do this. This is only if there is a possible concern. It really depends where you want to place your risk, and I guess that's life. So if you are happy with a test that's got a 95% detection rate and you have screened low risk, then that's good. But if you want something a little bit better and you're prepared to pay a little bit more, then this is 99.5%. So the only disadvantage at the moment is that our medical insurance companies are not helping us um, with reimbursement of the patient's fee at the moment for the test, and then, of course, the RAND dollar exchange rate. So at the moment, we're looking at around 7,500 Rand for the test, um, including the counselling and so on. And there is another company that will start in Johannesburg at Lancet Labs. They're using a different test, and I think they're charging around about 10,000 Rand. So it is expensive. But if you look at the cost of what it would be to pay for an amniocentesis, including the lab fee, then you're looking at more or less the same price. You've sort of got to decide where you're going to place your risk. Yeah, I was just wanting to make the point that not everybody listening needs to rush off and go and have this done because, as you said, I was I was Absolutely. angling I was angling for the point of is the medical aid covering this? And you often find this with new tests and new developments within the medical field. It takes them a little while to catch up and realize that maybe in the long run it might not be such a bad thing to do this. No, absolutely. But we've, we've seen in South Africa it takes about five years mm. to get going. So hopefully, you know, in the next couple of years or five years, if you, you say, um, the medical aides might have realized that, gosh, maybe this is something we ought to be covering. But, you know, it, it, we'll get there, I'm sure. I think we need to do the test in South Africa. So that's what we're angling for at the moment with the lab in in California, if we if we do enough from South Africa, perhaps they can open a satellite lab here, which would be the answer. But it's it's a wonderful new development when it comes to fetal assessment. I, I think you you know you you you're bringing the the sort of latest technology to us here in South Africa, and for that we're all very grateful. Thank you. Isn't that? 
planning. I mean, we're even ahead of Australia. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that, that actually really is great news. <laughs> I always feel very proudly South African when we do these amazing things. And this is another one of those proudly South African moments that look where we are. Look no, what we're there doing. You go. Well, well done. There you go. Well done to you all. I'm going to give out your website address and your contact number at the clinic if people are wanting to get in touch with you. But Dr. Cara Norman, thank, thank you, you very much indeed for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. I was chatting there with Dr. Cara Norman, who together with Dr. Shannon Morris, they're directors of the Fetal Assessment Centre here in Cape Town. And if you'd like to find out more information, there is a website. It's www.fetalassessment.co.za. And the number there in Cape Town is 21 Four six five three oh two one six eight three four six five three. And that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with time to travel. So join me then. You need any information, you can contact healthmatters at safm.co.za or the Facebook page Health Matters on SAFM. Stephen Kirk is up now with some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen.